I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. Today we welcome Dr. Chris Howard. Dr. Howard is one of those people who when you hear about his life, you think this has got to be a movie. Except that in Dr. Howard's case, you know that even with all that he's experienced and accomplished, there is still so much, much more to come. Dr. Howard is one of the youngest university presidents in the country, heading Robert Morris University since 2015. He's a product of and a passionate advocate for mentoring. He was a football star and was a pilot in the Air Force. It was uh, January uh, 1995. I'd just been engaged and I was on a solo training mission, and I was doing a, an acrobatic maneuver, and uh, I had to eject. I got two nose low, the aircraft was going too fast, and the commander of the base told me when I got out of the aircraft, you know, ejected, helicoptered back to the base, this was in Laughlin Air Force Base in Texas, he said, you made the right decision because I'm here to shake your hand and not pick it up off the ground. So I would have died had I not gotten out. I probably had about, you know, I've seen a simulation of it. I had less than, 10 seconds to get out. So I, I had to make a decision in a hurry to get out of the aircraft. It was the best decision I ever made. Uh-huh. That and moving to Pittsburgh, the two best decisions. <laughs> I mean, marry my wife. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to urge you to put that one in yeah, there. Yeah, all right. You. you know, it was one of those moments that uh, I wouldn't want anybody to ever go through. But even when I went through that and I was rehabbing my knee, I hurt my knee and I went through all these investigations, I was allowed to come back and fly. I thought to myself, this is really hard, but God is not going to put anything on me I can't handle. You know, you look for the missed blessings, and I'm a stronger person and a better person and a leader because I went through it. It's part of who I am. Please give a great colonial country welcome for the eighth president of Robert Morris University, Dr. Christopher B. Howard and his wife, Barbara. I have landed on the moon. No, I've landed in moon. I'm very excited to be here. My wife and I are del- absolutely delighted to be here, to be a part of a special community that has made history today. They have selected someone who looks like me. You and I have had the opportunity to get to know each other a bit since you've taken on the job as president of Robert Morris University. You're a fascinating guy. We have a lot to explore, but there's a theme to your life which has to do with mentoring and how you came to be where you are. And I'd just like you to say a few words, if you would, about why mentoring is so important to you. Well, I think mentoring is a form of service, and uh, it's one of those forms of service where you don't have to be a billionaire to do it. I was brought up by Marvin and Carolyn Howard under the mantra that one to whom much is given, much is also expected. Growing up in Texas with a big brother a year older than me, we were both athletes. We had a lot of social capital, and we realized the best way to spend it was to help others. In many ways, being the chief executive officer, the president of a university, the campus is your classroom and you're mentoring all the time, formally and informally. So Origins go back to how I was raised, but how it manifests itself now has just been uh, empowering and an honor to do. It's interesting to me that you use that quote about to whom much is given, much is expected. Yes. Often a quote that one associates with people of wealth, not a, a person with the sort of background that you have where you were one of 25 black students in your school of 1,400 <laughs> folks. And yeah. How did your parents come to think about their station in life that way? I grew up firmly middle class. I just happened to be at that juncture in my life living in a predominantly white community. My dad had been an army officer. 
My mom was eight months pregnant with me when my dad went to Vietnam as a combat engineer. And we lived in a mixed community in the military. Then we lived in a predominantly black community in Little Rock, Arkansas, and then ultimately predominantly white community. My parents, especially my mother, they were poor, but somebody forgot to tell them that. (laughs) My mom told stories about not getting electricity until she was like a junior or sophomore in high school, but also about the lights going out because they couldn't pay the bills. And again, my mom doesn't speak disparagingly. She speaks with great joy about growing up. But rest assured, when me and my brother, we always recognize where our parents came from, and that's where whom much is given. My mom and dad would always say, "Uh, see here, you got a roof over your head, you got food, you're going to a good school, what is there to worry about? (laughs) Be humble, be humble. I have two sons. One's 16, one's 20, and my little 16-year-old Josh was like, Dad, I just got Madden 2075, whatever the video Xbox game is. I'm going to go play it on Xbox. I'm like, that's not your Xbox. That's my Xbox. I'm just letting you play it. And my 20-year-old son, Cohen, he's like, Dad, I got this great Volvo. It's so tricked out. He's so cool and everything. My son, that's not your car. That's my car. I'm just letting you drive it. Me and your mama, we're rich. You two, you're poor. So be humble. Don't take credit for things that you have not done. Don't take credit for what your mama did, your daddy did, your grandpa did, your meemaw did. So we know you're gonna get there. You're not quite there yet. There's a great Kenyan proverb that goes like this. No matter how tall your grandfather is, you still have to grow. We were just not spoiled because they wouldn't let us be spoiled. And then we took it a step further and said, well, what can I do to give back? You felt a sense of responsibility, even as a kid, to give back. I I did. And what's interesting, I've been reading some literature about, you know, this whole idea of onlyness. When when I came in fourth grade, I was the only black kid in my class. My joke is that when I walked into fourth grade, there were two black people, Grant, and one of them was my mom, and she was leaving. That was it. (laughs) Oh, my God. That sense of onlyness was there, but it wasn't a form of despair. Now, I've been reading about how sometimes uh, it can have a deleterious impact on kids of color when they feel like they have to do it for the entire race. Hispanic kid, Latino kid, a black kid has to be all that. I understand that. But yeah, you're me, never allowed to be you. Yes. You're, you're expected to be the representative of everybody. Exactly. Let me speak on behalf of all black people in the world. Right. Because I, I want to <laughs> right. tell you, I've got right. a point to make. But I didn't take that as a burden. I took it as an opportunity mm. to do well and hope you represent my family and, and people that look like me and people that came before me well. There's so much in terms of where that led you. But I want to start with football because you became a high school football star. Is that where you learned to think about teamwork as well? Teamwork from football, discipline, attention to detail, courage, mental toughness. But it was interesting when me and my brother became football players because if you're a Texas high school football player, all sins are forgiven. (laughs) And it's just the ability to assimilate into a culture where I had a difficult time initially. But once we all mix it up playing football, things were cool. And you get this sense of, Ubuntu, which is African, you know, there can be no me without we. That's really special. So, yeah. How do you pronounce the word again? Ubuntu. Oh, it's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, it's a Zulu term. And it, you learn teamwork, but you also, and I learned this in the military as well, you're really judged by your ability to 
get it done, to make the run, to make the block. I think in many ways sports can be, and football can be, a great meritocracy with all its challenges and faults, but it still can be a great meritocracy. You were apparently in high school such a standout that there was an official Chris Howard day during your senior year. Who gets that? Well, I I tell you, it it was an amazing day, and we dropped 10,000 balloons. There were seven flybys. No, there was none of that. It was was at a library across town. It was several members of my church that really thought that me going where I was to the Air Force Academy, having been appointed to all the service academies and had a sense of success in high school, they wanted to lift it up for other people, whatever background, black, white, whatever. They didn't say this, but it wasn't about Chris Howard. It was about what Plano had done for Chris Howard to be successful in making sure that people could see that. Thank goodness there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter, so there were no, you know, you don't know what went on. I got an old paper Xerox uh, program for the day, but basically I think the mayor gave me a key to the city. My mom said something nice. My brother said, said something not so nice. That was a one-off thing. It is not an annual thing, but it was... I was going to say, you haven't lobbied to have it be an annual event. I'm you? not saying that I haven't lobbied, I'm just saying that it's not <laughs> an annual right. event, but uh, it was a real special day in June 1987, I guess. It's fabulous. So, in some way, given your background, unsurprising that you then decided to go into the military. You chose the Air Force. And I'm curious about how going into the Air Force Academy happened for you. So when I was 13 years old, I saw a picture of a West Point cadet. And I remember writing a letter to my congressman. I said, I think I was in seventh grade. And I said, my name is Chris Howard. I'm a good student. I'm a good athlete. I'm a good leader. And when I turn 18, you need to give me an appointment to West Point so I can go and serve my country. And my congressman wrote me back and said, you seem like a nice kid, but I'm not your congressman. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you got the wrong one. I got the wrong one. This is before Google, Grant. I had to go to the library, use the Dewey Decimal System, get a big book out, the political almanac, and find an address. And he wrote me back, and he says, but I'm going to forward your letter to your congressman, who was a guy named Steve Bartlett, who's actually a great guy, ended up becoming the mayor of Dallas. And so I was going to go to West Point. I was recruited to play football at West Point. But a funny thing happened on the way to West Point. We won the state championship my senior year, and I got recruited by Army, Navy, and Air Force. So I visited all three, and I fell in love with Air Force because there's a coach named Fisher DeBerry. sort of fell in love with the program and fell in love with his teaching philosophy. He's a strong Christian, great guy. And uh, I keep mentioning my brother. He's a year older. He was a great football player, played nose tackle at Baylor. And when he got recruited to play football, Grant, it was you know, Oklahoma, Texas Tech, Houston. And Coach Switzer, who had coached Oklahoma, had told him, Reggie, you're going to come to Oklahoma and be all big eight, that's how old my brother was, and you're going to be an All-American. Coach DeBerry said, Chris Howard, you come to Air Force Academy, I promise you one thing. And I thought, I'm going to be an all-Western <laughs> Athletic Conference player. We're going to play for a conference champ. He says, I'm going to work your tail off. That's all I promise you. And that's why I went. I said, that's the only thing God promised me. He says, it worked out really well. We had some great football teams, beat Ohio State in the Liberty Bowl my senior year, and started the last two years with Academic All-American. It was great. You have been a key partner to the endowments and the work that we've been doing with veterans. You speak clearly about your military experience. And when you reflect back on what it gave you, what, how did it help set you up for what you're doing now and how you view life? It overlaps with sports because it, it is a meritocracy. It's about teamwork. And more importantly, it's about the other. 
So there used to be a saying that still goes on in the military that mission first, men and women always. You know, if you're an officer, you eat last. The whole idea of command, it's a covenant of a command. It's a responsibility that you will put them in front of yourself. The military is it's the highest rated and respected institution in, in civil society in America and, and, mm-hmm. and, and consistently gets that, right? It's not perfect, but it is noble in its intentions. They told us at the Air Force Academy, we, we kill people and break things when told to by our civilian leaders in a responsible way in defense of America and our way of life. You know, there's a code of conduct. There's a litany of what governs what we do, and it's, you know, it's real stuff. You know, I've served downrange in Afghanistan. I've served downrange in Bosnia. But the whole idea that every day you get up, it's not about you. Mm-hmm. you when you grow up with that for, I guess I started putting on a uniform in Army JRTC when I was like, 15, and mm. I took off my Air Force Lieutenant Colonel uniform maybe five years ago. So I've always either been in the military, wanted to be in the military, or just left the military. And I think it's because it's a, it's, it's a real noble profession in this country. It's a wonderful, noble profession. Do you worry that respect for that is getting lost? For service? Yeah. I don't think respect for the service in the military is being lost. I just think that not as many people do it. Mm. And so it used to be back in post-World War II, there was a preponderance or a plurality of people that had served in the military. But I think people still do hold it in reverence, but I think less than what 1% people actually serve in the military. So, After the military, you end up in academia. And I'm curious why you chose that path. You know, I, I kind of came up with a mantra years ago. I want to mm. lead, I want to serve, and I, I like want that. to grow. And I've kind of used that as my North Star. And higher education has been the perfect fit because we're leading the the generation of that's going to make all the difference in the world. Uh, We're serving, I mean, because in terms of producing citizens or a workforce or whatever, institutions of higher learning are are huge in that. And in terms of growth, I mean, there's nothing I touch in a day that doesn't help me grow as a president. I mean, Mm -hmm. this podcast, Mm -hmm. my getting a wonderful shoe shine down the street before I came here, having lunch with a great business executive before I got here as well. I have friends that are trauma surgeons. You're a trauma surgeon. You need to be focused. Right. <laughs> you know, there's no no right. wandering eye. When you're a university president, it's French literature in the, in the morning and football in the afternoon, and everybody you meet is a contact with the university, whether it be coming to give a talk or talk, mentoring a kid or, or mentoring a graduate student or what have you. And I like that. I like the eclectic... You don't know what's going to happen in a given day. That suits my personality. We're planting the seeds for the folks that will take care of our great-grandchildren. And that's pretty, pretty cool. Pretty cool indeed. Can we get this one back on? Is this working? Testing? Okay. Um, president can't do anything by himself. I mean that 100%. And that's not just me trying to be funny or make a, a quip or what have you. Um, the president cannot do anything by himself. Maybe tie his shoes, but that's about it. Let's talk about Robert Morris for a moment. How did you choose the school as the place to come next in your career? And what do our listeners need to know about it? Well, it's a wonderful university. I'll, I'll do the quick quick commercial on it. It's about 5,000 students located in Moon Township just outside of Pittsburgh here. And we like to say we're big enough to matter yet small enough to care. You know, we've got graduate program, D1 athletics, 
very strong in all the professions, uh, engineering, nursing, accounting, finance, one of the top actual science schools in the world, top 25 in the world, actually. And uh, how did I get to the moon? I'd been in Hampton Sydney College, a small liberal arts college that was actually older than America. Founded in 1775, mm. a wonderful liberal arts college actually for men, single sex. Mm. And I'd been there for oh, a little bit over six years, and my wife and I thought we'd stay for six to eight years or whatever. So long story short, when I got a phone call from uh, it's straight up Pittsburgh stuff, Dick Thornburg's son, John. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows everybody. Right, so, right. And he said, you should look at this school, Robert Morris. And I had heard good things about Robert Morris. I had met their president, Greg Delamo. I'd heard they'd beaten Kentucky in basketball. That was cool. <laughs> and I'd heard great things about Pittsburgh. I said, okay, let's find out. And then, as you know, Grant, once you start meeting Pittsburghers and feeling the sense of spirit and you know, civic pride and unity, and it's been a fun move. It's been three years and one month today. Wow. <laughs> and during that time, you have positioned Robert Morris, among other things, as a leader in working with veterans. Yes. You stepped up early when the conversation in our community started about supporting Navy SEALs and the possibility of, of bringing more Navy SEALs coming out of the military to Pittsburgh and finding a home for them here. Um, you have worked, I think, aggressively to find a home for general veterans mm-hmm. um, at the university and to give them opportunities. Aside from being a veteran yourself, why is that important and what's the message for the rest of our town and our society? To those that have borne the greatest burden, especially in post 9-11, people either, if they've deployed downrange to that combat zone or Iraq or something with the global war on terrorism, even if they haven't deployed, they've been impacted by it. The general concept of if they've served, they should be supported anyway. And then with us at Robert Morris University, it's just a great fit. We have a history of helping students that are coming from different backgrounds. But the fit with veterans is just, and it even starts before me with with Greg Delamo, it's just so natural and so organic to who we are and so authentic. It also is a great opportunity for a city that needs human capital talent. For me, with the inflection point study mm-hmm. that says that if we don't get it right, then the risk of having in the next 10 years being short 50,000 jobs is a real possibility mm-hmm. based on baby boomers retiring and just growth in areas like right. FinTech, right. I2, et cetera. So what better group to fill that human capital void than veterans? Pittsburgh is a really patriotic city that cares deeply about those that have served the country. And then the per capita numbers for veterans really bear out. And so there's a sense of brotherhood and sisterhood. And it's harder to find in other big urban areas. So all the table has been set. Now we got to just eat. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. I want to ask you about the Impact Young Lives Foundation, the work you've done through that. But um, to get into that, I need to acknowledge that you, as I did, married well. <laughs> and you have a partner in life who brings her own rich set of experience and comes from South Africa. Tell us a little bit about your wife and then how you got into the Impact Young Lives Foundation work. Sure. So my wife is the former Barbara Noble, uh-huh. now Barbara Noble Howard from Johannesburg, South Africa. She uh, grew up as a colored South African, C-O-L-O-U-R-E-D, which is the the nomenclature used under the apartheid regime for mixed-race people. You had black people, which are Hoza, which is Mandela was a Hoza, or Zulu, Shaka Zulu was a Zulu. And there's like nine different predominant tribes in South Africa, and those would be considered black. 
Uh, if you're mixed, you're colored. If you're Indian, you're Indian, and they're whites, and predominantly English or Dutch descent. And through apartheid, you had to live almost like Jim Crow laws, but on steroids in certain communities. So my wife grew up as a colored in apartheid South Africa, and the stories that she would tell, they sounded like my parents' stories. I mean, she couldn't go into certain places. She couldn't try and close in certain places. She uh, um, had to go to certain segregated schools. It's utterly fascinating because she's younger than me. Mm. And then uh, her lapse in judgment in marrying me, um, <laughs> it just all kind of fell apart. The mission of the Impacting Lives Foundation, of the IYL Foundation, is to identify exceptional, previously disadvantaged South African university students and transform them into globally-minded citizens. We do that by bringing them to America to basically see civil society in America in action. Because we are a small organization, a lot of people will say we will not make a big impact, but I think that's wrong. Sometimes you do need these small organizations because you take one person, like Nelson Mandela, to make a change. It will be my way of going back to my country, and it will be my connection to South Africa. What was funny is we started this essay competition at our old high school, and nobody applied initially because they couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe anybody was going to fly them to America. I mean, you couldn't even get a passport back then. Sixty kids later now, we brought a bunch of them over, bring about five to ten over every summer for about two to three weeks. And it's just this great bus ride. My wife literally drives the bus, and they go to these great places, see these great sites, meet with great people, including coming to Pittsburgh. We used to go to Philadelphia. Now we know better. We come to Pittsburgh. You've learned. I've learned. It's been, it's been three and a half years, but now I know. And they have the most remarkable conversations with people. And they leave with an understanding of why America as a relatively young democracy has thrived in its challenges. Because South Africa is a very new democracy. And the kids are typically black, colored, or Indian. You've never seen the modeling of civil society with people of color involved in a significant way. What do you hope they'll do with that when they get back? A couple things. Uh, developing global minds today to solve global problems tomorrow. And mm -hmm. so they go back and uh, they become great citizens, global citizens, but out of South Africa. And the thing I'm really big on is that I saw one South African, I can't steal any more grant. We just want them to be there and present and contributing with God's gifts that have been given to them in South Africa. And they've done it. One of them just was the youngest black woman to be partnered at this major firm in South Africa, and she has a nonprofit on the side. And they're, they're really contributing big time to the civic glue in South Africa. JAG officers in the military, doctors, lawyers, engineers. It's a wonderful legacy that I'm happy to be a part of. When they look you in the eye and say, I am a different person, Dr. Howard. I am a different person. I'm a more hopeful person. I'm a more professional person. I'm a more prepared person to be a part of this cosmopolis, as it were, because I had this experience. They had been to America. They have seen um, this city on the hill. They understand that they have a place on the hill, and they want to bring people up with them. Another issue that you've taken on is gender equity, and you've worked to ensure that men and boys engage in gender equity work. You've signed on to a pledge to have 50%, I think, of the executive positions in higher ed be occupied by women. Why is that important to you and how's it going? Yeah, I signed the pledge a couple of years ago when I was on the board of the American Council of Education when I first became President Robert Morris. And I think 30% of all chancellors and presidents will be women by the year 2030. And I think we've eclipsed that already. 
which is good. Mm-hmm. Our own Bear Center for Nonprofit Management with Peggy Uten, they've done studies and said that, you know, even in nonprofits, women are making, I think, 70 cents on the dollar, although it's moving in the right direction. How despicable that is that we are denied having our sisters be able to have the same opportunities that our brothers do simply because of their gender. It struck a court me personally because it's it's a form of injustice against some, so therefore it's a form of injustice to all. Mm-hmm. And I am, have a platform and I have a megaphone, I have an opportunity as a university president to speak out and to say and to mentor, and it's just an honor to do so. It's like you started the whole conversation with mentorship. It's mentorship and it's also using the bully pulpit, as Teddy Roosevelt would say, to say, we can do better than this, and everybody loses if we don't do better. On the flip side, having run a liberal arts college for men, it's interesting about boys. In 2019, the challenges, the unique challenges in, uh, that young boys are facing, whether they be red, black, green, or purple, they're really underperforming compared to their female compatriots. Every degree from bachelor's to doctorate, there are more women than men. If you look at suspensions in school, disproportionately more boys than girls. Across the board, um, suicides, homicides. You know, when's the last time there was a terrible shooting and it was a woman? I mean, what 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 is the angst? What is going on with men? What happened where boys feel disconnected, not loved, and appealing to this thing called false masculinity? To be a man is uh, not showing emotion. To be with as many women as possible. Or to be a goofball. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got some role modeling and some mentoring we need to do the right way and help boys of all backgrounds get on the right track. So it's interesting that we I haven't done this in a long time, so thinking about what can we do to support women specifically? What can we do to support boys? But recognize, we want to recognize the humanity in all of them and not make these false dichotomies. But by the same token, you know, you want to give people what they need to be successful and use data-driven, great procedures, policies, whatever, to help them be successful. You're a big thinker, and I'm curious what you think about where we are as a country right now. So we have this declining level of participation in the military, uh, declining pursuit of enrollment in higher education, clearly the kids who are struggling in schools across the country, and yet lots to be optimistic about as well. But I'm just curious how you think we're doing as a country at the moment. Well, I think Churchill said that Americans can be counted on to do the right thing after exhausting all the other options. (laughs) We'll get it right. We have a history of uh, and an ideology around perpetual getting better mm-hmm. and being optimistic and being hopeful. The line to get into America is a heck of a lot longer than the line to get out, mm-hmm. even with all the challenges we're having. There are specific problems that we're facing right now, but there are bright spots. Entrepreneurship is a phenomenal thing that's happening across this country. State legislatures balancing budgets and Democrats and Republicans working together. This generation, the millennials and Z, they volunteer more than any other generation since the greatest generation to fought World War II. They might go into the Peace Corps or Teach for America rather than the Marine Corps or the Air Force, but they're going to serve. There is a sense of wanting to give back that is palpable and that, that I'm very excited about. I see it every day on my campus. I mean, Golly, I'm bullish on these things. I was somebody who spent my time 
years ago when I was at Oklahoma, my family stayed back in Boston, and I went back and forth between Oklahoma and Massachusetts. I said I had my own reality TV show. Uh, red state, blue state, black guy. Just back and forth. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I really think that people have a lot more in common than they have that brings them together than separates them. Ultimately, we're going to get it right. We just have to recognize that there are a unique set of problems, not to panic. Use some of these great tools of technology and big data mm-hmm. to help address those problems and believe in our youth, and I do. I have to ask you this. Do you ever think about running for office? <laughs> I'm in the most political job in America. I'm a <laughs> university president and running for the Robert Morris University ticket. No, I've thought about it. And I remember talking to my dad, and, you know, you, you serve your country downrange in the military. You serve your country in elected office. You serve your country in appointed office. What's the difference? If you really mm-hmm. want to serve, what's the difference? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've found that this is a place I can serve and I can lead and I can grow. And uh, I'm happy to be in the RMU party. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Excellent. So the name of this podcast is We Can Be. And I always like to conclude by asking you to complete that incomplete sentence. We can be what? Better. We can be better citizens. We can be better fathers. We can be better students. We can be better human beings. We just have to work at it and have a sense of Ubuntu. How's that? It is so clear what is important to Chris Howard. People should be judged not by where you come from or what you look like, but by your ability to, in his words, get it done, make the run, make the block. He approaches his work with the same ideal of active contribution. With work and patience and with the help of a good mentor or two along the way, he believes the world will open up to us. But he also spoke of the Zulu word for humanity, Ubuntu, the concept that there can be no me without we. We stand on the shoulders of giants. We are all the product of community and generations. It is clear he is living by this concept and that we would all benefit from doing the same. (laughs) 